Church, if you would open up your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to continue with our series, Revealing Jesus, and we will be looking today at the second of seven churches that Jesus dictates a letter to in the book of Revelation, the seven letters of which are contained in chapters 2 and 3 of the book. And church, just to make mention of this again, it is important to note that when we discuss these churches, that yes, there are little churches that existed in the first century AD, so they have literal relevance. But they very much also have spiritual relevance in that each church addresses spiritual issues relevant to believers today. So when the Lord commends them for some things and then rebukes them for other things, these commendations and rebukes are just as applicable for us today too. Because the spiritual relevance is, what is Jesus saying to the church, even right now? And the spiritual application, therefore, is just as true for you and me today. These churches were in existence in the first century in what is known today as Turkey. And just to give you a picture of what I'm talking about, have a look at this picture of where these churches were located. The body of water on the left is the Aegean Sea, and these seven churches were located on the western end of what was known in ancient times as Asia Minor. This is the presumed route by which John's letter was circulated among the churches. As you can see, that line starts on a little island called Patmos, and then it moves in a clockwise direction to Ephesus, then to Smyrna, to Pergamum or to Pergamos, then off to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and then off to, finally, off to Laodicea. It's good to get a mental image of where the churches were located as we go through the next couple of chapters. Last week, we looked at the first church on the route. We looked at the church at Ephesus. And we found a church that didn't compromise on the truth. We found a church that called out false teachers, a church that was so theologically sound that they could literally measure anyone against the truth and expose error. They were a church that persevered, were patient, and labored for my name's sake, as Jesus said. So they were a church that stood for just about everything a church should be standing for. And Jesus commends them for these things. But then he rebukes them and says to them, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Those early days of hearts on fire, passionate labor and devotion to Christ, being consumed within and just absolutely loving Him, with that innocent love as of a child, those days have been replaced by a kind of dutiful works and doctrinal coldness. The heat of that first love has gone and you've left it behind. You see, Jesus points this out to His church even today. Because the cooling and familiarity of love for Christ is the forerunner of spiritual indifference. And indifference is the forerunner for love or for something else, of love for something else. And that means compromise with evil, that means corruption, and even the death of your spiritual life. And that's why Jesus says so strongly in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. 
And that's why we need to take a good hard look at ourselves on a continual basis and take on the Christian privilege of being an overcomer who falls on their knees, repents, and returns to the Lord with a humble and pure heart so that our works flow from a right heart. And you see, church, if we don't have this practice, if we don't have this attitude, we stand the same risk as the church at Ephesus because they didn't heed the warning of the Lord, at least for not long enough. And today, all that remains of the church of Ephesus is a bunch of ruins because the Lord removed its lampstand from its place. Right, a very strong warning to the church back then and even a strong warning to the church today. This morning in our time together, we are going to look at the church in Smyrna. Just to give you some background, Smyrna historically was a Roman city which was granted the honor of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius. It was the epicenter, if you will, for what was known at the time as fanatical emperor worship. And what does that mean? That means that there was a religious cult there that worshipped the emperors of Rome as gods. And so you can just imagine that right from the beginning, the church at Smyrna was facing tremendous opposition because they set their hearts on worshipping the one and only true God, and yet the culture that they were in was calling them to worship other things as gods. Just as our culture today insists that we worship the things that the world worships. The biblical historians tell us that Smyrna was persecuted more than all the other churches in Asia Minor. And that's why when you look in your Bible, when you read this letter, the heading of this letter is the persecuted church. So this word of encouragement and comfort from Jesus in this letter is really needed. It is really welcomed by the church at the time. Just something I want to make reference to this morning before we get into our main portion of Scripture and I want you to write this down if you can, or take a strong mental note of this, is that suffering for Christ's sake is an aspect of discipleship. It is an aspect of discipleship that most would rather dismiss, and then some extreme positive confession teachers would try to preach it out of existence to say that God has never called you to suffer. But the Bible says that Jesus is our example for suffering. Suffering is a reality of discipleship, and it is often times that you find suffering is the means by which God glorifies himself through your life. The Bible says in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. In other words, we don't just suffer for suffering's sake. We don't suffer because we're doing worthless stuff, right? But he's saying here, if we suffer for the sake of Jesus, that's where the blessing is. That's why Peter goes on to say in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, in other words, guilty by association, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Many times, church, through the suffering that we suffer for the sake of Jesus, God glorifies himself through that suffering. And what you'll notice here as we get into this portion of Scripture is that although the church at Smyrna was under severe persecution, Jesus does not coddle them. 
He comforts them, and there is a big difference. You see, to be coddled is to be pampered. It's this mentality of, oh, poor me. It's about self. And if you're coddled, you just stay where you are because you're in the self-pity mode of it's, it's everybody else's fault but mine. Jesus doesn't coddle them. He comforts them in the sense that he gives them the confidence or encouragement to continue. That's the difference between being coddled and, and being comforted. When God comforts us, he doesn't leave us where we are. He comforts us that we might move beyond where we are, that we might continue on, and that we might endure in our race for Christ. Amen? So with that in mind, and that as our foundation, let's read what Jesus says to the church at Smyrna. Now let's pick up our reading from verse 8. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Church, again, it's unrealistic to believe that we can follow Christ without suffering some form of opposition. And in case you didn't know it, the world today is totally opposed to Jesus Christ. And because you are guilty by association, because you believe in Jesus Christ, the world is totally opposed to what you believe and what you stand for. Jesus told us it would be that way. He said to us in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. But the comfort that Jesus speaks to a church or to a Christian that is going to be hated by the world... The comfort that he speaks to them is not based on just some motivational talk that he's giving here, but rather on the divine attributes of his own nature. The divine attributes of Christ. He's not just giving them some motivational talk saying, hey guys, hang in there, you can get there. No, he's giving them attributes by which they can be encouraged and comforted and hold on to that they might endure to the very end. And maybe somebody here today needs to hear this message. Because you've been going through a difficult time in your faith journey. Maybe you've even started questioning your faith. Maybe things aren't going the way that you expected to, but God wants you to know that you can make it. God wants you to know that you can endure, not based on how you feel. Not based on some motivational talk, but based on the divine attributes of Christ. And let me share these attributes, attributes with you this morning. If you like to take notes, number one, you can be comforted and endure as a Christian today because of his authority. Because of the authority of Jesus Christ. It says there in the latter part of verse 8, 
These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And church, what does this speak of? It speaks of his deity. It speaks of his authority. God is the first and the last, right? He is the beginning and the end. He is the omniscient one. He is the omnipresent one. And he is also the omnipotent one. He declares himself to be the first and last also in chapter 1. But then he says to John, the one who is talking to you here is the one who was dead but is now alive. In other words, the words you're hearing are not a motivational talk, but are coming from the complete and total resurrected power and authority of Jesus Christ. There's a big difference, right? You know, a lot of times we come to church and we, we feel good about coming to church. Right? And we should. But the question is, why do you feel good? What is the, the source of your encouragement? Because a lot of people can come to church and they go, you know, they can go to another type of church, maybe even from a, a different religion. And they get this religious feeling, they get these religious goosebumps that leave soon after they leave the church building. People come out of church sometimes and they say, man, that was a powerful service. Woohoo! Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And you ask them, what do the pastors say? They say, I don't know. I just feel good. You know? I was out partying last night and I did something I shouldn't have done. So I came to church today and I feel so much better. But you see, church, it's, it's more than feelings. It's based on the power and authority of a living, resurrected Christ. And you know what? That is our authority as believers. And that's why we can continue on today, and that's why we can say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he is the first and the last, I can endure. Amen? So on the basis of Christ's authority, we can endure. Number two, you can be comforted and endure as a Christian today because of his knowledge. Because of his knowledge. Look at what verse 9 says. It says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And church, can I share a small secret with you today? God knows what you're going through. He knows. And that should be a source of comfort for you and me today as believers in Jesus Christ, that God knows our circumstances. The devil wants you to believe that, that God doesn't know. And that God was looking in another direction when he hit you over the head and caused that thing to happen to you. He wants you to think that God really doesn't care. But the Bible tells me in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11, give all your worries and cares to God. Why? For he cares about you. He cares about you. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, For if our heart condemns us, which it does oftentimes, listen to what it says, God is greater than our heart. Why? Because he knows all things. Amen? You see, it's a lie from the enemy to say that God doesn't know and that God doesn't care. God knows what is happening in your situation, and if he knows we can be assured that he's in the midst of the situation with us because he cares. Somebody needs to hear that this morning, and somebody needs to give God praise for that truth. Amen? He knows. 
What Jesus knows really matters. Because the world was calling the church in Smyrna impoverished. It says there in verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but Jesus interjects and says, you are rich. And you know what, church? I really like that. Because it's what Jesus knows about me that really matters. The world says you're poor. Jesus says, no, you're prospering. The world says hopelessness. Jesus says, no, hopeful. The world says loser. Jesus says overcomer. The world says dead. Jesus says live. Amen? And you see, if we're not careful, church, we can get caught up listening to the labels and, and living by the label that the world has put in us of loser. You know what? You can't make it in life. Your, your marriage is over. All these different things. And unfortunately, a lot of times, we as believers hold on to those labels and we begin to identify ourselves by those labels. But church, where, where is our identity? Our identity is in Christ. For me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. Amen? Because he knows what we are going through, we can endure. Tell the person next to you he knows. He knows. Number three, you can be comforted and endure as a Christian today because of his gospel. He says in the latter part of verse 9, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And church, don't you just love how Jesus, how direct Jesus can be? He doesn't say, you know what, these Judaizers that are infiltrating the church, they, their doctrine is a bit off. Just go and have a word with them. No, he says, they are straight out of the synagogue of Satan. Right? He doesn't mince his words. And, and why was he so strong with this rebuke? Because they were promoting another gospel. They were Jews elevating their Jewish heritage as righteousness, and Jesus strikes that down without apology. He refutes it strongly and reminds them that they are not Jews at all. They are the synagogue of Satan. Because by elevating their own heritage with the gospel or even above the gospel, they were in fact preaching another gospel. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And then Paul just says in the next verse, in case you missed it the first time, he says it again, let him be accursed. And why does he say it twice? Because it's another gospel. And church, whenever you elevate your heritage, your skin color, your denominational preference, your talent or your abilities above what Christ has done on the cross, it is another gospel. Jesus said it is straight out of hell. Paul deals with this issue in, in Romans chapter 2 because many of the Judaizers were teaching that salvation had come to the Jews and that it was only for the Jewish people. Paul flat out denies that, and he says to them in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, he says, For you are not a true Jew, just because you were born of Jewish parents, or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. 
No. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is the change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. That's powerful, right? So Paul was making this point, and Jesus reiterates the point here to the church in Smyrna, that those who are true Jews, those through whom God is going to choose to reveal His glory, are those who indeed are born again. Not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit of God. Amen? God is concerned about the inward transformation of our hearts, not the outward religious practices of man. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 reminds us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And can I tell you something this morning, church? No one's going to be boasting in heaven one day. God's salvation to us is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There'll be no one boasting in heaven one day as to how they got there, right? And so if someone asks you, how are you finding it so easy to endure as a Christian today? You tell them it's because I have confidence in the finished work of the cross. You tell them I have confidence in that it is finished and that I can't add anything to it or take anything away from it. And because of it, I can move forward in my relationship with Christ, I can press on in my upward call in Jesus Christ, as Paul put it, because the work has already been done. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And he says, church, whatever you're going through, you can hold on and endure because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because you are a child of God. And you've been given the right to be called a child of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You are able to make it. You can endure because you are an overcomer through me, Jesus says. Somebody needs to shout amen to that truth right there. It was a good amen there. I like that. Now, lastly, number four, you can be comforted and endure as a Christian today because of his sovereign plan for your life. Jesus comforts the church at Smyrna by reminding them of his sovereignty. And we get here to verse 10 where he says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Church, he who knows the beginning from the end knows what you are about to go through. You know, in life, we've got, we've got all these plans, right? We're planning to do this, we, we're planning to do this and, and go there. But the Bible says that, you know, in all our boasting, when we boast about our plans, that it is actually evil. It says what we ought to say is that if the Lord is willing, I'll do this, that, and the other. Because God knows what you are about to go through. You know, church, there were a lot of things that myself and Pastor Renell 
were planning to do five years ago before we were called into ministry and before we accepted the call. We had this plan of what we were going to do with our lives, how we were going to spend our money, where we were going to retire one day, but God knew what was about to happen. God knew what he was about to take us through that he could develop us to get us to where we, we are today. Right? He knows what's about to happen. And you see, he is sovereign because he can see what you and I cannot see. And you know, church, you know what I've learned over the past couple of years? I'm a bit of a slow learner sometimes, but you know what I'm starting to learn? I'm learning that because God knows what's about to happen in my life. He goes before me. And he stores up his grace for whatever I need to get me through what I'm about to go through. The Apostle Paul didn't know what he was about to go through when he was beaten, when he was stoned, when he was shipwrecked, among many other things. But the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So church, when we find ourselves in difficult places, when we find ourselves in a difficult place, we don't have to sit and worry and go, where's God? He's right there. And he's gone before you and stored up grace sufficient for you to get through it. You see, it might take us by surprise, but it doesn't take him by surprise. And we should draw comfort from the fact that he's there even before we get there. Amen? It's interesting that it says in verse 10, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, some biblical scholars will, will differ on what the 10 days represent. Some say that it was a specific event of persecution that they were going to suffer for, for 10 days in prison, in addition to the ongoing persecution. But others say that it refers to the 10 worst Roman emperors that the church would be under and suffer persecution. And there were 10 Roman emperors that severely persecuted the church. But whichever way you look at it, Jesus is calling the church to have a holy resolve for what they will have to endure. And what does that holy resolve look like? It tells us there at the end of verse 10, be faithful until death. I mean, just, whoa, hang on a minute right there. Isn't that a bit radical? I mean, I think I can be faithful until next Sunday, or maybe till the following Wednesday, but until death, right? How far do I go as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Until death. I mean, Lord, it's been six months now. I've been trusting for my breakthrough. I've been praying for my healing. I've been praying for my finances. I've been praying for my husband that's been stuck on crazy for so long. How long must I wait? How faithful does God want me to be? He just told me. Until death. And you see, church, without that mentality, you won't be able to endure. And remember, He is sovereign. So He knows your beginning from your end, and His grace is sufficient for you even unto death. It says here, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And what is the crown of life, you may ask? It's the crown you will receive if you are faithful until death. And it is one of five crowns that is mentioned in the Bible. 
You have the crown of life mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2 and again in James chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 9, it speaks of the incorruptible crown. In 1 Thessalonians 2, it speaks of the crown of rejoicing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, it speaks to the crown of righteousness. And 1 Peter chapter 5 speaks to the crown of glory. But here's the thing, church. There are different crowns that God is going to give us according to the way that we endure. But all those crowns, according to Revelation chapter 4 verse 10, are going to be cast down at the feet of Jesus. Nobody's going to be in heaven one day with a you know, crown tilted to the side of their head saying, check me out. Nobody, right? Because there'll be no boasting in heaven. The only one worthy of the crown we receive is Christ. And we will, as an act of worship, you know, humility, and homage before our God, we will cast our crowns at His feet and say, Lord, you alone are worthy. It's only your work that has got me here. And Lord, I have been able to endure because of your authority, because of your knowledge, because of your gospel, and because of your sovereign plan over my life. And what a day that will be. Amen? Jesus ends the letter to the church in Smyrna by saying in verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And church, we will go into the detail of the second death when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But in closing this morning, I want to leave you with this. The city of Smyrna received its name from one of its principal commercial products, which was myrrh. That's where the name Smyrna came from, right? Smyrna. Myrrh was used as an ingredient for a number of things, which included embalming fluid, perfume, and anointing oil. According to John chapter 19, verse 39, myrrh was a part of the spices that they put together to embalm the body of the Lord Jesus to prepare his body for burial. Psalm 45, verse 8, talks about the fact that myrrh was used as an ingredient for a perfume or a fragrance. And in Exodus chapter 30, verse 23, it was also the ingredient used among other ingredients in the anointing oil for the priests in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for myrrh literally means bitter. And what's really interesting, church, is that myrrh would only be useful and become fragrant once it was crushed. Once it was ground and it was crushed. And what's the point I'm trying to make this morning? Jesus was speaking to the persecuted church in Smyrna who were facing severe persecution. And Jesus is speaking to the church or to the Christian today who will suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. He declares comfort and encourages them and us today to not fear the things that are about to happen. Why? Because he's a God who's able to take the bitterness, that's the myrrh, and produce a sweet-smelling fragrance to the glory of God. He's the God who's able to take the bitterness of your situation and produce a perfume, a sweet-smelling aroma to the nostrils of God. That's why he says, do not fear. It's going to be all right. Because all things crushed together and mixed together 
Work together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Now, church, because of his authority, because of his knowledge, he knows what's going on in your circumstance. Because of his gospel and where you stand in relation to that gospel, and because of his sovereign plan over your life, every single detail of your life, you can be comforted that you are able to endure as a Christian today. Amen. Can we praise his holy name this morning for his word today?